This talk is about gradual development and sudden insight, or the two levels of reality and the practice of the paramitas. And I'd like to begin the talk with a poem, a quote by the Tibetan Lama Jodhinima Rinpoche, and I've slightly edited a few words to make it more comprehensible for us. When watching the magical display of this apparent world as it seems to be, an overwhelming sorrow and compassion spontaneously wells up in me. When watching its nature of innate simplicity and emptiness as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels compassion and the one who is laughing both disappear and cannot be found, now what to do? There are two aspects of reality and of practice about which there have been endless discussions and differences in view and approach ever since the Dharma has been taught. One has to do with the distinctions of truth or reality into apparent or conventional truth and into ultimate truth. With this there has been the question and debate on which one is more important or more relevant for practice. The other aspect has to do with the distinction between a practice of gradual progress and development and sudden insight or sudden realization. And I think the second one is quite close to what Christina spoke about last night, attainment and non-attainment, though it's slightly different and uh, our ways of talking about things being so different, I don't think there'll be much repetition. I'd like to look first at the distinction in terms of reality or truth, and I'm using reality or truth the same way, synonymously. And speaking about things the way I do, I'm using a model. When I speak of two levels of reality, I'm not saying, you know, there's really two levels somewhere, but to talk about some of these things which are in, in a way inexpressible, when we speak we are using models that illustrate that which is talked about or is meant by it. So just to remember it's one way of speaking about it, other people might have completely different ways of speaking about it. Keep that in mind. 
what we call life, our own and others, life within us or outside of us, is this continuous, seamless flow of perceptions and experience, an incredible variety of things and events, body experience, sense experience, feelings, emotions, thoughts, and so forth. It's the world we know, the world of appearances, the world of agreements and conventions, and we call it apparent or conventional reality, or sometimes called relative truth or relative reality. As meditators practice, we're highly aware of the changing, unstable nature of this apparent world. The fact that all things are impermanent and in constant flux and in constant flow. As Rumi puts it, think of how phenomena come trooping out of the desert of non-existence into this materiality. Morning and night, they arrive in a long line and take over from each other, saying, it's my turn now, get out. That sense, every moment, every perception, is sort of taking the place of the previous one. (coughs) Previous one has already gotten out of the way, and the next is there, and the next one is there. In a way, we could say life is a rapid succession of moments of perception that isn't in any way solid, substantial, or self-existent. In fact, all of it is mere appearance, appearing much like a mirage, or a magic illusion, or a reflection on water. It's appearing, and yet it's empty, ingraspable. Existence merely seems to be, as Lama Jaginima puts it. That does not exclude the fact that it sometimes very intensively appears, as we all know. And yet, even though it's quite fleeting and insubstantial, it is governed by very strict lawfulness. All conditioned things and beings, events and experiences arise or come into being as a result of causes and of conditions. Events in life don't just happen randomly coincidentally, out of the blue, they happen lawfully. On the material or physical plane, it's quite obvious to us, actually. Objects that have weight fall down because of gravity. You don't ever think about that. It's so obvious. Light, gases, warm air goes up. Water turns to ice when it 
cools down to a certain temperature, it turns into steam at a certain heat. It's all very lawful. All these laws of velocity and laws of energy and the biological laws. From a flower seed we get flowers of the same kind. I mean, it's so obvious, one shouldn't even say it, but we never get another kind of flower from one seed, which is pointing at the fact that it's a very strict lawfulness. It's not every now and then, you know, sunflower seeds are making roses or something, just for a change. It's an unchangeable lawfulness in all this. Similar lawfulness applies to our thoughts and actions. It's less obvious to us. Sane, wholesome, and life-supporting attitudes and actions create pleasant and happy results. Unwholesome, destructive attitudes and actions create painful, unhappy results. As the Buddha says in a text, if people speak or act with an unwholesome, impure mind, suffering follows them as the wheel of the cart follows the animal that draws the cart. On the other hand, when people speak or act with a wholesome, pure mind, joy follows them as does their own shadow. When we act out of greed, we'll experience poverty or in the moment at least a sense of poverty, a lack of things we need or we believe we need them. We act out of hatred, we'll experience being disliked. Hatred itself is a suffering. On the other hand, when we act with generosity, we'll experience abundance. That very mind state is one of inner richness. When we generate love, we'll experience happiness and joy. It's the law of karma. That too is a very powerful law. As Beings are caught up in his laws, not understanding them, thus endlessly creating suffering for themselves. Even though they're in a way desperately, we're all in a way desperately trying to be happy. When we see that, and we don't see it around us or in ourselves, open a newspaper, it's incredible. Seeing that, we understand the first part of the poem. When watching the magical display of this apparent world, as it seems to be, overwhelming sorrow and compassion spontaneously wells up in me. Being identified, caught and lost in the appearance of things, in this apparent reality, 
will make us suffer. So all these are the workings of apparent reality, of conventional reality. It's how life functions, the powerful laws of cause and effect. Now we can also look at the nature of this reality. Look at what it's made up of, its texture, so to speak. And if you find that this part of the next 10 minutes, this talk, is too theoretical or abstract for you or you just don't get it or don't like it, never mind, just stay with the breath or with hearing sounds or whatever, okay? As soon as we shift our attention from the way things appear or seem to be, that means perceiving the surface of a apparent reality, as soon as we start to scrutinize their nature, look into what they're made of, texture, so to speak, we're in for surprises and discoveries. And now, do it on a more obvious level. Take a sunflower. We look at the sunflower, and it's green, it's yellow, and brown. It looks pretty. It's very decorative. It can be bird's food, maybe. It can be made into oil and so forth. That's its reality as we know it and as it appears to us, its appearance and its functions. When we begin to look more carefully at what it's made up of, that which we know or which we would call sunflower starts to disappear. We find a stem, we find leaves, we find petals, and we find seeds, and all that. But as we start to look at these different things and look more and more into all of this, we won't come down to something that we can say, okay, and now this is sunflower. I used to do that as a kid, I don't know why I did that, but I used to be so fascinated taking apart flowers and things, and then, you know, you get to, you must get to the, the flower somehow. So at the end there was this little green thing left, and I'd take a razor blade and cut it up, and there were some other things in there, but if you could cut them up, you never got to something. And by that time, the flower was obviously gone. You know, what was lying there on the table couldn't be called, you know, a rose or a sunflower. It disappears as we start to look into it. We might find it's made up of different nutrients. We might even go deeper and be able 
analyze its molecular structure, I don't know if they have DNP codes or whatever it's called. Some scientists might be able to get into its subatomic reality, molecules and then below, whatever those things are, quarks, whatever. Yet the deeper we look, the further we seem to be away from sunflower. In fact, as soon as we go beyond its mere appearance and its functions, we can't find it anymore. It is empty of being itself. And I think maybe here that should be very clear. It does not mean it doesn't exist. It does not mean, you know, in the place of a sunflower, and really there is a big empty space, you know, and that's emptiness or something. So whenever this word emptiness is used, that's what it really means, empty of being itself in a sense that it's unfindable when you start to really look into it. does not mean it's not what it is. We know it because maybe we had its oil for lunch. It has its reality. But in some weird way, it does not exist the way we think it does. Rather, it is simply made up of a lot of other things. And when they come together in a certain way, we call it sunflower. It's like the mind imputes this. It's not that it makes something out of it that it isn't, and yet we grasp this arrangement of things and say, sunflower. We don't see all the parts at that moment. We don't say, oh, I just brought in a few uh, arrangements of, of green petals with yellow. Uh, you know, we don't see it like that. It's this thing. But beyond that appearance which the mind then somehow imputes as sunflower. It can't be found. We see it as that and we all agree. You know, we all agree. That's what it is. That's why it's often called a conventional reality. It's appearing and yet it's empty of itself. Another example, to get a sense what this imputing could be like. Take a 50-pound note. I just learned today there's no 100-pound notes in England. So take a 50-pound note. There's the paper. You know, it's a certain type of paper that's used for money. There's a picture in it, the queen maybe, I suppose, in a certain text, and the number, the figure, 50, or whatever the amount is, printed on it. But it's not a real 50-pound note unless 
the government declares it to be a 50-pound note. Like, I don't know if you have monopoly. If monopoly money, we call it, you know, 50 or 5,000 or whatever it is. And when players agree, then it has that value in that set, in that play. So it's the same. Government declares it to be a 50 pound note by an act of imputation, saying that now, from now on, this paper signifies such and such a value, 50 pounds. And it works as soon and because everybody agrees on that. And then we say, this is a 50 pound note, isn't it? As soon as it's taken out of circulation, it's not a 50-pound note anymore. I happened to bring an old one to the change in, in, in Switzerland another time. I think I came back from here. And they looked at it, and it was a 50-pound note, or whatever it was. But, and he's shaking his head, you know, and I thought, wait a minute, you know, this is one. And he said, no. It's an old one, meaning it was one, but it's not anymore. <laughs> Isn't it strange? So we call it we call it an old fifty pound note or X fifty pound. <laughs> so we see there too, it's actually empty of itself and merely exists as this thing by imputation. So in this way, things are not really what they seem to be, whether it's flowers, or money, notes, or people, or bodies, or our minds. <clears throat> they are, of course, what they appear to be, as long as they appear, and we stay on that level when we look into it. <clears throat> Somehow, something changes. The way things and we ourselves exist as conditioned appearance and the way they really are, empty of self, of themselves, is very different. One is the conventional, conditional, apparent reality. The other is their ultimate nature. So it's appearing form, yet empty in itself. And yet the two, or so-called two, realities of appearance and emptiness are not in any way apart from each other. There may be, we could say, like two sides of the same coin, but it's not even that. It's perhaps a little closer. We say it's like the fabric or texture of a cloth. So maybe this, whatever it's called, some kind of velvet. And its color, red. The difference, the color isn't the texture, and the texture isn't the color. But you can't distinguish them. You can't see one and not the other. So they're different, and yet one 
so not to think that, you know, they're two sort of realities floating around, one over here and one over there. They're different yet inseparable. So, form, appearance, is no other than emptiness. And emptiness is no other than form and appearance. They're two aspects of the same plane, both equally important and relevant to us. Because in terms of appearance, we want to understand its laws. We want to know the rules of the game so we can play the game well and live its beauty and live it to the fullest and know and be clear about what creates happiness and how not to create suffering. In terms of ultimate truth, we need to understand its way of being, its way of existing, its true nature of not being graspable, not being solid. To the extent we understand that, we're free. We're free because duality is seen through. We see that nothing can be grasped or held on to. And we see that there is no grasper in this whole game anyway. Thus the poem says, when watching the world's innate simplicity and emptiness as it really is, I cannot help to feel wonder and break out in laughter. So now we could look at the second topic of this talk, and you'll see why and how they're related. The distinction between a practice of gradual development and sudden insight to realization. And I think it's actually quite easy to understand and to see that there is no contradiction in these two ways of seeing practice. On the side or on the level of apparent conventional reality, we practice, we develop, we attain certain things, and we manifest our understanding love and with compassion, responsible ways. On the side of ultimate truth or reality, though we practice awareness, investigation, concentration, maybe inquiry or satsang if you wish, insight comes. It doesn't really develop. It happens. It, it isn't gradual in a way. Somehow it suddenly hits us or a light goes on and something that wasn't seen at all is very obvious. Not even that much has changed. It's just that like, oh, right. And something is seen that wasn't seen before. In terms of ultimate reality, what is seen is emptiness, the emptiness of phenomena, or what is seen as unconditioned 
so to say that something even meditation or inquiry or anything is the cause of it it doesn't make sense it cannot be caused by something either it's seen or it's not seen and perhaps Yuji Krishnamurti which is the other Krishnamurti from the famous one another one maybe he came close to formulating this by saying enlightenment is an accident but meditation seems to make you more accident prone <laughs> so it's not we do something and it leads up to you know like cause and effect but it seems that awareness somehow and inquiry and looking into and coming from stillness and all those things they make us yeah they make us accident prone or something for a complete life of spirituality we need both the practice of development developing positive qualities as well as insight into the ultimate emptiness the unconditioned much like a bird needs two wings to fly both important both essential aspects of of life of a worthwhile life of a spiritual way of being a helpful model I find is that of the Tibetan Buddhist um, paramita practice this refers to a number of areas in our life that we work on or look into so as to bring them to a certain completion so maybe paramita could be translated as completion if one wishes the most important areas here are generosity morality patient acceptance enthusiasm meditation and wisdom or insight six sure they sound quite familiar to you by now Five of these have to do with the practice and gradual development of qualities of mind that are relevant in this conditioned apparent world. One of them has to do with insight into the ultimate way of being of all things. They have been compared to a body with the trunk and the four limbs being the first five parameters and the sixth wisdom being the head with the eyes so the first five do the work we could say they get us where we need to go there is going from A to B there is development there's somehow doing if we want to use that term 
Well, the sixth insight is like the eyes that see and understand. Understand what we do or where we're going and how the nature of that is. So there isn't time to get too much into each each one of the parameters, but I like to just touch on each one of them shortly. Generosity. It's really the end of attachment and grasping. It's the renunciation, the letting go. It's the relaxing and opening that brings a lot of ease to one's life. When that movement is motivated by love and compassion, and it's not just passive but active, it blossoms into generosity, open-heartedness, where we give what we have, we give what is needed. It could be material gifts, our time, our attention, our work, our knowledge, our love, our care. It's a practice when done generously, not just pretending, brings great joy and it brings a sense of abundance. Interesting point that is made in in a Buddhist tradition sometimes. Just that um, it's really not what we own, what that belongs to us, but what we give away. Because what we own, it doesn't do that much to us. I have it, but then so what? What we give away creates happiness and creates very positive karmic results in the future. So, in an interesting way, all that we give all that we give away, really, could be said is what we own. The parameter of generosity is complete, is a parameter when all the sense of separation, of giver, of receiver, and of the gift falls away. When both the oneness, connectedness, and the emptiness of actor and acting has been seen. So it coincides with the completion of insight or wisdom, the sixth paramita when it's complete. The next one, the second one, is moral integrity or ethics. Its cause is is twofold. In one way, it arises out of understanding the effects of our actions on ourselves knowing that unwholesome actions harm us, ourselves. Unwholesome uh, wholesome ones will make us, ourselves, happy. So, understanding that, out of that understanding comes a wish to live with integrity. But, 
it also arises out of compassion for others wishing to protect others from harm wishing to see them happy, bring them happiness that too causes us to live in a way of integrity so we live in ways that are non-harming, non-violent sensitive with respect to life in all forms respect for what belongs to others respect to relationships, sexual relationships respect in ways of using food, drugs, alcohol and all that Moral integrity is said to be the leg for someone walking on the spiritual path. Without it, we just can't get anywhere. Traditionally, it is said to be the cause for human rebirth, for being born in a, in a human form that has access to to dharma, to ways of understanding itself. It's also said to be a cause for actually meeting dharma. So, from that point of view, too, it seems a very worthwhile thing. People with strong sila or moral integrity are like beautiful flowers that attract many bees. They attract human beings because they make them feel comfortable, unafraid, fearless, and happy. They're also said to attract the gods and the Buddhas. And in this way, they are protected and blessed. Moral integrity is complete, again, when both the oneness and the emptiness of all life, all that lives, is realized, is seen. Then it becomes natural, becomes obvious to act in such a way. Now, just as generosity is the end of clinging, holding, patient acceptance is the end of aversion. And it can be seen on two levels. It can be seen with respect to situations, objects, mind states, emotions, and experience within oneself, or with respect to sentient beings, to others, to life around us. It's the mind that remains open, relaxed, and equanimous when encountering any kind of experience, especially when encountering difficult, unpleasant experience. Shantideva gives an illustration. This earth is often covered with thorns, rocks, and stones, and things. We often behave like someone who is trying to cover all the rough places on the earth where one might want to walk through with leather or protective kind of cloth or thing to keep one from being hurt 
when stepping on those places. He says the wise person instead simply wears a good pair of shoes on their feet and they'll be protected from all the harm wherever they walk, wherever they go. Patient acceptance is like such shoes. Everything is taken care of because wherever we step, you know, there's good shoes on. No more problems. Acceptance is compared to the great mother earth. It lies completely open to give and receive anything to anyone. Open to sun, to rain, to seeds, to the crops, the animals and people, forests, cities, anything. It's that state of the mind and heart that doesn't close or make itself hard, but is willing to allow and feel whatever comes. So patience is not really clenching one's teeth, but allowing for life, even welcoming life. And it's the cause for great serenity. Again, when all sense of separateness is gone, patience is a paramita, is complete, is natural. That same openness and well-cunningness when turned towards people and beings is none other than love, than metta. Defined as being a soft friendliness towards all living beings, including oneself. It's a cause for great happiness and joy, again, for oneself and others. Next is enthusiasm, or energy, or perseverance, or determination. Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, says, Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. I don't know, but it is a very powerful aspect in life and in our practice. It's been compared to the steady pace of the great elephant, to the courage of the great warrior, and to the enthusiasm of the great lover. In our way of practicing, 
we aren't running or speeding somewhere. We're not struggling, fighting. Yet, we're also not creeping along. I mean, physically, we are. But in terms of, of purpose in what we do, or ambling here and there, occasionally making one step forward and maybe two backwards or something. We keep on moving with the steady pace of the great elephant, unperturbed as much as possible, and with real perseverance. And to understand that illustration, you, must, you have to see an elephant who walks, you know, through crowds. There, there's one in Botgaya, used to be one, he's not there anymore. And it's so crowded and hustling and bustling and, you know, it just rocks and rickshaws and people and dogs and goats and everything and it goes. And then you, the elephant comes and you hear ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. And the elephant walks through this whole thing and there's no hesitation. It's not fast. It's not slow. It just has something to it that is so amazing. It sails right through. And it's nothing stops it. It doesn't hurt anything. It's just very impressive. Something of that quality. Over and over we need the courage of a warrior to face all the difficulties, the outer and inner obstacles the unpleasant mind state, the impatience, the restlessness, the resistance, the indulgence, laziness, the distractions, and all the rest. And we need to bring to practice some of the interest, the joy, the fascination, I could say, and the enthusiasm of the great lover. We need to cultivate and nurture our devotion and love for the Dharma, for understanding, for this incredible journey and exploration. The price is not less than the true heart's release, as the Buddha put it. There are two more images to illustrate enthusiasm, and I really like them, so I'll share them. They're quite different in flavor, one from the other, and you can have your pick, you can choose. One is, we must practice as if our hair were on fire, with great urgency. That's one image. The other one is we want to enter practice just as an elephant tormented by heat and dust throws itself into a a cool lake with great joy. Just imagine you're an elephant having walked through the desert and the heat and the sun and there's the lake and it just goes wham. (laughs) So I guess we need both attitudes, maybe at different times. 
I feel important is that we learn to grow and serve with joy instead of grimness and worry and complaints and shoulds and guilt and being tight about it. The fifth paramita is that of meditation. We need to bring about presence of mind, awareness, mindfulness. And we do work, or whatever you want to call it, on it all day long. Doing that with continuity, concentration, calm, and steadiness of mind arise. It's like on a lake when wind and waves subside, allowing for a clear and deeper seeing through, through the surface of the water to the bottom of things. This quality is compared to the king eagle majestically soaring in the sky, leaving no trace. In one way, it's the kind of mind that can be applied to deep absorption, deep, very powerful one-pointedness of mind. Or else, or where we're going to it, when applied properly, it can be one of the means that can help to create the condition for insight or wisdom to arise. And I'm not saying it's causing it, and yet it seems to create ideal circumstances for it to arise. Wisdom or insight, the last of these parameters. called Prajna Paramita. It's the insight into ultimate reality, into the empty nature of all things. The recognition that though all things and beings, including ourselves, appear to be born, to exist, and to die, as we see in every instance, with every perception, with every experience, being born, seemingly being born, seemingly existing, seemingly dying. Nothing is really happening. Nothing ever did happen, and nothing ever will. Things are in their ultimate nature, unborn and undying. The understanding is powerful when beings come to a point like apparently the last Karmapa, when he was on his deathbed, and had been very ill and in a lot of pain, and was about to die, and from the place of from the place of his wisdom he said, Nothing happens. When we can say that in the face of death, then that's where you're probably getting closer to the completion of the paramita of wisdom. It seems that this can be recognized or experienced 
within and through appearance, the apparent reality, or beyond all of it, outside of it, so to speak. And depending on the depth and the impact of this recognition, the mind or one's being is more or less affected and transformed. So we practice mindfulness and awareness, we apply investigation or inquiry, we look into each and every experience, look into our mind, our own sense of self. The actual seeing or the recognition is sudden, it just dawns. The seeing only takes place now not a development up to it, takes place in that very moment. And what is realized is timeless, is uncreated. That's obviously not created and made up through practice. It's how things are. It cannot be made up in any way. And yet it clearly seems to make a difference whether we try to awaken or not, whether we practice openness and letting go or not, it clearly makes a difference. When we understand that what we are looking for in terms of ultimate reality is not caused by our practice or our behavior, not caused by doing good things, wholesome things, the right things, not destroyed by doing the wrong things and negative, unwholesome things. It's totally untouched by that. Then we also have more of a chance not to direct our effort in the wrong direction. What we are looking for has always been present. It is closer to us as our own skin. Recognizing it is great relief. And with this, the ignorance and the conflicting emotions which torment the heart and the mind are greatly weakened. But that isn't the end, though, and it's important also to know whether it's for ourselves or knowing for ourselves when we look or hear about others who have come to the end. The sixth paramita of wisdom is really complete when and only when all the hindrances and factors, all the conflicting emotions, including all desires and aversion and conceit, even subtle ones, and all of ignorance are gone forever not only seen through, which is one thing, which is, much, which is far closer in terms of what is possible, seeing it through, and that creates credible freedom, but disappeared from one's being. That's the completion of wisdom, the prajna paramita. And we imagine a person who lives 
that kind of realization, that kind of freedom and completion, it very obviously must be a very great, saintly person. And I think with such a person, no need to explain quirks, in this case, away, you know, funny ways of behavior and all that, because they don't show up anymore, because they're really gone. In this way of practicing the paramitas, our spiritual practice is quite complete. On one hand, on the level of ultimate truth, there's an understanding of the nature of all things and the realization of freedom and peace, our own freedom, our own peace. And I think it's there to the extent we understand the empty nature of things. On the other hand, on the level of conventional, apparent reality, we practice, we develop, we perfect ourselves and our minds and hearts. We develop the beautiful qualities of being in this life, such as generosity, love and kindness, interest, enthusiasm and all the rest, for our own, but even more so for the benefit of all of life. So what we do here, what we call practice, it's not something in which we effort and effort and then wait for something else to happen. We do it in order for something else. Rather it is both practice and manifestation, or if you wish, play of what is most worthwhile and what is most beautiful in life. I'd like to close with a poem by Suridas, the friend, the practitioner and teacher in the tradition of Tibetan Dzogchen. Do people understand the word uh, in drag? Um, the non-English speaking. It's in, could you say in disguise when you sort of dress up somehow? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a kind of way of dressing up. Things are not exactly what they seem to be. What one makes of it makes all the difference. We are far more Buddha-like than we think. Words say much, mean little. Everything passes, nothing remains. No one says a word, nothing happens. Reality is actually emptiness dressed up in drag. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.